Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, as we read verses 22 to 36. For many of us, this is a very familiar story. Hear now the word of God. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sing, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might touch only the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. (laughs) Lord, would you speak this morning into... All of the various situations that each person in this room faces today. Would you give your spirit to a people who are very much in need of him? We, we do need you today. We do need your help. And so please cast your light upon the text so that we can see your truth clearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What kind of things make you afraid? Uh, I think the answer is probably going to depend on your age. Um, Or even you might give a different answer today than you would have given 10 years ago, if you were even alive 10 years ago. Uh, When I was a kid, I was terribly afraid there would be something under the edge of my bed when I would get up at night. Um, That's not a concern of me now, just so you know. I mean, it's not a thing that I think about or meditate on too much anyway. Um, My fears changed when I was a teenager. When I was a teenager, I wasn't afraid there was something under my bed. I was afraid that girls would never want to talk to me. And then I was afraid of girls. So those are are weird fears to have at the same time. Uh, When I was in college, my college, my, my fears were a little more grown up, right? How will I ever pay off these student loans? The answer is you'll never pay off these student loans. Uh, As a married man, my fears are even more grown up. My wife and I are 
We're going to be driving to Bend this next week, and we both thought, what happens if we both die in a car accident together? And so we made sure to fill out a will so that something would happen with all our stuff and our children. Uh, pretty grown-up kind of a fear. If you'd asked me when I was 10 years old whether I was worried about that kind of thing, I would have said no. Um, you know, I can't speak to every fear that exists this morning in this place. My guess is everybody here has something they're afraid of. Um, either you are anticipating something happening or you are in the middle of something that is real that you can't see your way out of. And if you are afraid or if you're anxious, you have something in common with the disciples. I want you to see that you have a common condition with the disciples and the situation they find themselves in. Because in this passage, they know fear. Today's passage is defined by an event that very much touches on the subject of of our fear and what God plans to do about that fear. And the question, of course, is what is Jesus's answer to fear? Between the storm and the ghostly figure on the water, what is Jesus's answer to the truly upsetting events that they face in this passage? And then based on how the disciples' fears are answered, I want us to learn some things about how our fears are answered. And so to begin with, we see Jesus in three ways. We see him as three different things, if you want to put it that way. We see Jesus as the temptation killer. Then we see him as the sea walker. And then finally, as the fear stealer. Um, It is through knowing Jesus better that he takes our fears and enables us to face even the truly terrifying moments of life with a sort of holy acceptance. And I want us to see what that looks like here this morning. And so first this morning, we see Jesus as the temptation killer. Uh, If you just look at the passage as it's written, you may be wondering, why did the disciples leave Jesus behind? Um, Surely they knew Jesus would not be able to join them if they left without him. Um, To be honest, uh, a few years ago, I was preaching on a similar passage in the Gospel of Mark, And in the margins of my my Bible, as I was looking at this text, I wrote the question, um, because in Mark's gospel, he doesn't explain this. I wrote in the margins, I'm sorry, John's gospel. uh, I wrote in the margins, how odd for them to leave without Jesus. And and at first, it is a little strange that they, they go without Jesus. How did they expect Jesus to catch up to them? And the answer for why they left without Jesus is actually here in our text today. Matthew tells us. It says that they went because Jesus sent them. They were being obedient to him. Uh, They left him behind to dismiss the crowds. There's something about Jesus is able to face whatever it is that's going on with the crowds. And we'll talk about that in a second. That he does not believe it is wise for his disciples to do. So why would Jesus tell them to get into the boat and go to the other side? It's, it, it, was it just because he was setting them up because he, he was planning on doing a miracle? He's, he's planning on walking to them on the water, and so he sends them away because that's how this works? Well, to be honest, that could be part of the answer. Maybe he fully intends to walk on the water and come to them, and that's the part of the reason why he sends them. But I think there is another answer. Because in this moment, here's, here's at least one thing that's happening By sending them away, Jesus is removing them from a specific temptation that they face with the crowds. 
And this is the reason why I call this section Jesus the temptation killer. Because they are literally fleeing across the water at the instruction of Jesus. But what are they fleeing from? Whether they know it or not. Well, remember last week. Last week, Jesus fed the 5,000. And after Jesus fed the people, perhaps you remember this. They tried to take Jesus and make him king. In John's gospel, John actually tells us this. He says, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So what does he immediately do? He sends the disciples away from these crowds that want to make Jesus king and start a political movement. Um, Jesus did this because his own disciples didn't really think very differently from the crowds at this point. They didn't think differently about him and who he was. They still thought Jesus was a worldly king. And it would have been a major temptation for them to join this crowd and try to make Jesus king. And sending them away at this crucial moment is how he copes with that temptation. It's how he removes the temptation from them. He removes the temptation by removing them. There's a, there's a reformed writer named Hunius. I don't quote Hunius very often. Uh, Hunius says this about the whole situation. He says, let us learn from this. That we must not only flee from sins, but we must flee from the opportunity to sin. For often the opportunity itself entices one to sin. And thus it is rightly said, opportunity makes the thief. Um, I think that's so... Interesting and helpful for, for Hunius to point out. Um, Jesus would rather remove them from the situation than to simply say, uh, toughen up, guys. Look this temptation square in the eye. Stay on this side and resist the temptation to make me king. Instead, he would rather have them flee from their temptation. As a Christian, I, I suspect you have learned this about yourself. I hope you have. You learn things about yourself with age you have to, to run from opportunities to sin. You know, just like Joseph, right? We learn this from Joseph uh, when he's being tempted by Potiphar's wife and she makes that move on him and he runs. He doesn't care if he loses his cloak. He, he leaves it behind. Um, you very well may have things in your life that you have to flee from them because if you, if you face the temptation, you might fold, or maybe you've learned about yourself. You always fold when that temptation faces you. You know, and, and I, I'm going to just give you some possible scenarios where you might need to run. If you can't be trusted with your phone to look at good and true and lovely things, you may need to use screen time on your phone to keep you on the straight and narrow and maybe give someone else your password. You can do that. Uh, you may need to put... Content blockers on the internet at your home. Much of the content that comes into our lives comes through that little router. Um, if you're a teenager and that's a problem for you, it may seem mortifying to do this, but talk to your parents about it and ask them to help you have precautions in your life. Um, it doesn't have to be a teenager. Even adults need those precautions too. Um, the temptations you face may be a temptation to covetousness. There may be certain stores or websites or TV shows that stoke your covetousness. That you, after you watch, there is just a list of dozens of things that you really, really want. And you did before. 
Um, maybe there are opportunities where you just go and you just judge people. And you judge brothers and sisters and you think badly of other Christians. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. I used to belong to a, a website uh, on Facebook back when I used Facebook. And it was, a web, it was a page that was exclusive to ruling elders and teaching elders in, I, in our denomination. And I, I didn't post on that page, but I sure was frustrated at times. And, and I even eventually became very judgmental towards the people on that page. I was discouraged by how even some ruling elders and teaching elders in our denomination interact with each other and talk to each other. I was discouraged by how many hours and hours and hours it seemed that these men spent online basically arguing with each other. And it started to affect me. I had an unhealthy attitude toward my brothers in the Lord. The temptation to judge others and look down on others was very great for me. And so I had to step away. Do you need to say no to yourself with regard to something? Is there something maybe, and maybe it's not necessarily sinful, but it stokes sinful attitudes inside of your own heart. Uh, These are all just different possibilities. I don't know what your issues are. But think about your own temptations that that you know need to be put to death and you know that you keep putting the opportunity before yourself. We shouldn't just flee from sin. We should flee from the opportunity to sin when we keep failing. If you find yourself in the the place where sin has an opportunity and you say, well, the opportunity itself isn't sin, so I'm not going to do anything about it. Ask yourself this question. Do I hate the sin that I keep committing when I'm in this position? See, that's what Jesus does for his disciples. He sends them. You know what Jesus would love? Jesus would love for the disciples to have a heart change and an attitude change and see him properly in such a way that, that they don't have to flee to the other side of the, of, of the Sea of Galilee. He would rather they just be sanctified and know the truth. And yet he knows this is not the time. And so they flee to the other side because Jesus sends them away from their opportunity to sin. And it may be that that is exactly what you need to hear and what you need to do in your own life. Even the opportunity is dangerous. And so out of wisdom, you find a way to avoid it. That's Jesus, Jesus, the temptation killer. Now, our second point is the sea walker, right? So in in their obedience, the disciples are crossing the sea. They are in the boat. Uh, Verse 28 tells us that while Jesus is on land, the disciples are a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So it says says it's the fourth watch. The fourth watch means that it's somewhere in the 3 to 6 a.m. period. You know, these are guys who really wish they could have slept by now. Now... Here are some, there are some commentators, and they, they make an allegory out of the wind and the waves. Um, what I sound like I'm about to do is it sounds like I'm going to be allegorizing the wind and the waves. But what I actually want you to do is, is see the situation of the wind and the waves as a situation in which they are tempted to fear. And I want you to see how Jesus answers it here. Um, the wind is strong. The waves are terrifying. The water is all around. The danger is seemingly at its highest point possible. And you could imagine what this might be like. 
Um, uh, Ulrich Zwingli, he talks about this, this exact situation, and he says something. He says that we need to remember that even this storm happened by the providence of God. This storm did not descend upon the lake by mere chance or random circumstance. There is no such thing as luck in this world. This is a world in which God governs all things. And so even this storm comes upon the lake, and it was always the plan of God that this storm would come upon the lake. And by this storm coming, what is God doing? He's showing them what life with Jesus looks like, without Jesus looks like. That's what Zwingli says. He says, this is a picture of life without Jesus. He says this, added to this bad situation was the fact that Christ was not present. When Christ is absent, there's nothing but fear and confusion. Verse 26 tells us the disciples see him walking on the sea. If you had seen this, you would have freaked out too. Um, Their reaction is not amazement. They're not delighted. They don't think, oh, this is wonderful. Oh, look how powerful Jesus is. Instead, they're just terrified. They're just terrified. They, they are not excited to see Jesus on the water. They are repelled and they are afraid. Um, during the Reformation, there was a monk who wrote about this. And I think he explained it beautifully. He said this. He was visible to them through the darkness of the night. Treading by foot on the sea, walking on the water of the sea as if walking on the soil of the earth. Seeing him now coming close to the boat and frightened by the extraordinary strangeness of the situation, they were afraid, thinking that he was perhaps a specter or a demonic illusion of the sort that were sometimes accustomed to appear to those sailing or making a journey at night. Remember who these men are. These men are fishermen. Uh, for the most part, with a few exceptions, these men were accustomed perhaps to telling stories late at night of ghostly apparitions upon the sea. Uh, this is the way that sailors spoke to one another. Jesus, of course, was not a ghost. He was flesh and blood. But this was, this was them grasping to understand what they could possibly be seeing. This was them giving their best explanation. What is this thing that is terrifying me right now? And they give the best answer they could possibly give. It must be a ghost. See, here's, here's the problem with what's going on in this moment. And the problem isn't with Jesus, right? Jesus has done nothing wrong. He is not a person they should be afraid of. They are afraid and they are at fault. It is their fault that they get the situation wrong and that they get Jesus wrong here. And I think there's a lesson here for us. It isn't unusual for Jesus to seem to us almost like he is unfriendly or indifferent when trouble is happening in our lives. Um, There are times in our lives where things, things do become so bad where if I said to you, where is God in this situation? Where is Christ in this situation? There are people who... Who honestly right now would say, I I don't know, I can't understand what he's up to. And if our faith is wavering, we might even say, perhaps he's abandoned me. When the wind and the waves are going in our lives, we can be prone to misunderstanding and and misinterpreting Jesus. Jesus is always good. Jesus is always wise. Jesus is always loving. If you are his son or daughter... 
everything that takes place in your life, even the hardships and the difficult things, are meant to make you more holy. But when the waves are happening, whenever the troubles come in our lives, we very well might find ourselves wondering, why isn't Jesus here for me? Why doesn't Jesus love me? Why has God rejected me? Those thoughts may very well come up in our hearts, even if we're afraid to say them out loud. I've had a number of times in my life where it was very tempting to ask questions like that. Times when my plan was not playing out, um, and that's putting it mildly. When I could not wrap my head around whatever God was up to, you know, you, you usually think, oh, I can find the silver lining in this bad thing. And I've had things in my life happen where I didn't see the silver lining and I didn't see the good. And it was very tempting to wonder exactly that. Where is God? Where is Jesus? Does he care? Has he abandoned me? In those times, it is easy to live in our own heads and forget that God is good And we forget that he's still ruling even over the sorrows of our hearts. We just just misunderstand. We misunderstand what's happening. And in those times, it is not Jesus' fault that we don't see him. It's not Jesus' fault that we don't understand him. The problem is with us. And too often that's the case. Are you in one of those moments? One of those moments where you know Jesus is, is there, you know God is watching, you know that he cares, you, you affirm that he's sovereign over all things, and, but you misunderstand him. And you know you're misunderstanding him, you know that you're not seeing the situation the way that God sees it, and you don't appreciate what he's really like, or you find it hard to believe that he's up to any good at all. You need to understand in the moment of pain or in the moment of fear We, because of our human weakness, are prone to misunderstand. We're prone to misinterpret. We're prone to to do what William Cooper talks about in in his poem, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. If you know God moves in a mysterious way, then you perhaps remember this, this verse, this passage where he says this. He says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And and it could be right now, you are experiencing the frowning providence of God. It could very well be that you are experiencing the frowning providence of God. And maybe you aren't right now, but maybe you will soon. In In fact, I think, I don't think this is a foolish thing to say... All of us at one time or another will experience the frowning providence of God. Things will happen in our lives and it will look like a divine frown to us in that moment. And what we're doing in that moment is we are relying on our feeble sense to try to grasp what God is up to and understand what God is up to. When in all honesty, we have to let him be God. We have to let his wisdom rule. We have to remember that he is sovereign. And even if we don't find our silver lining and we don't find the thing that we think God is up to, we still are able to be like Job and say, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what faith does, right? Think of Job. In that moment where Job has lost his family, he has lost his possessions, he's lost his home, his wife is telling him to curse God, He doesn't see a silver lining. He is not given access to the heavenly throne room. 
He's not able to see what it is that God has been up to. And yet, what does he do? He must trust. And so he says, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then the writer of Job adds as a postscript in all that Job said, he did not sin. You know, maybe you listen to that. You think, well, the Lord didn't take it away. Satan did. The Lord didn't take it away. The wind did. Uh, The Lord didn't take it away. Something else happened that, that, that did it. And yet Job says, ultimately, it was the Lord. Job is subject to the frowning providence of God. And in that moment, he rests and trusts in God alone. And you see, you may not be able to see. The disciples do not really see. They don't really understand what's going on here. They perceive God, but they don't understand him. They perceive Jesus, but they don't understand him in this moment. But that's what trust is. Trust is is knowing he is there and not being able to see it. You can't figure it out. In in your mind, you've, you've worked all of the patterns through and you say, I don't know. And the disciples make the mistake of judging by feeble sense, but we should not do that. That's because Jesus is the water walker. Third this morning, we see Jesus is the fear stealer. Uh, Galilean sailboats weren't exactly deep sea vessels, right? They were not exactly great at or impervious at resisting waves. Um, they had very low sides on them. I don't remember if I've shared this already, but years ago, they did find a Galilean sea vessel from the first century, and it had been covered in mud in the Sea of Galilee, and then it was so covered in mud that it was actually preserved. And then when there were low tides, there was a time of drought, I think, as the Sea of Galilee receded, there were, there were folks who actually found this Galilean sea vessel, and they, they, they dug it out, and they took it to a museum, and they were able to preserve it. And you can go on the internet and look at pictures of the Galilean sea boat, and you can see what it looks like. And they basically reconstructed how this boat looks. And if you had 12 men sitting in this boat, 13 if you count Jesus, if you have 12 or 13 people sitting in this boat, what you would have had is water up very near the top line of the ship. Then to bring in the fact that you've got waves and you've got wind and you find that well, this is a very scary little boat to be riding on the Sea of Galilee in. Um, if you were there, you would not feel secure in this boat. Um, these are experienced sailors. These are men who have been on the sea before. And all of that's frightening enough. But then you have this appearance of Christ. And I want you to notice this. Until he speaks to them, they are afraid. Until he speaks to them, they are afraid. Um, Matthew, who knows precisely what's going through their heads because he was with them, says this. He makes this statement. He says, they were terrified. But then Jesus speaks to them. He says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And here's what I want you to see. Until Jesus speaks, they are filled with terror. Until Jesus speaks, they are fearful. And we need to to hear this for ourselves. Unless we hear his voice, we will live in the midst of of our storms and struggles, but we'll keep being afraid. Um, Now, here's what we do. Uh, Oftentimes, we, we don't turn to the Lord. We don't immediately pray. Instead, we think, I'm a smart person. I can figure this situation out. 
And, and often what we do is we look for encouragement. We look for things that we can grab onto. We, we, we look around for them. We grasp onto them. We try to find some way to look on the bright side of what's happening. Or we try to find the light at the end of the tunnel. And, and, and we try to work hard to find our own way out. And we try to solve our own problem. And, and it may work for the moment, I think, at times. But here's what happens if that becomes your pattern in dealing with every single danger or fear that comes up in your life. Eventually, you will find a storm that you can't stop. And you will encounter a problem that you can't fix or a health crisis that you can't solve or a problem that doesn't that that isn't easily fixed with some solution. And and as a man, my my temptation when I find a, a problem is always to find the solution as quickly as humanly possible to resolve it and then you know sort of dust my hands off and say this is great i handled it and here is the thing though oftentimes that problem comes and you can't fix it anymore and when that happens god is reminding you you can't control all of the storms you can't fix all of the problems and eventually you come to the point that you see god must be god We must listen to Jesus speak. We should get into the habit of listening to Jesus speak all the time, right? This is why Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. You could pray without ceasing either by thanking God or always bringing before him the problems and the troubles that you have. And it is better at a young age especially, get in the habit of taking even your small problems to the Lord. Get in the habit of taking little things to God because someday you will have something so big that you can't hold it, and you will have to hand it over to the Lord. We need to be in the habit of doing this. The voice of Jesus is what makes the difference here. I, I know I shared that, that quote from Zwingli earlier. Well, I didn't read the whole quote. Because the Zwingli quote, the quote that I read earlier says, When Christ is absent, there is nothing but fear and confusion. But then Zwingli says this, When Christ is present, every disturbance is calm." Please don't see that as a cliche. For Christians all over the world who suffer, this is not a cliche. On more than one occasion, I've known Christians in dangerous or life-threatening situations, and they demonstrated an immense trust in God at a time when you might think to yourself, I wouldn't trust God in that moment. I would freak out. Um. The one situation I think of that's closest to me, at least, was a good friend of mine named Matt. He was in China when the coronavirus started emerging. So, you know, in like it was December of 2019 when all of you started getting a cough up here and wondering where it came from. Right. He was over in China and he was teaching at a English language school and his family was sent home. Uh, and they hadn't closed the ports to the U.S. They hadn't closed off the United States to China yet. And so his family left. He was the head of the school. And so he stayed behind. And so he was behind at this school for months by himself. And this is the time when they, when they had locked everything down. He couldn't leave his home. And so we would talk on Zoom and visit and see what was going on. And I'd say, what are you doing about food? He goes, oh, I have the keys to the whole building. So I just walk around and go into people's apartments and I eat food out of the refrigerators. Uh, everybody left. He had this huge building to himself. 
Uh, which to some of you, that maybe sounds like a dream, right? This, if you're an introvert, you're just like, this is a dream. But not if your family is in the United States and the borders are now closed and you don't know when you're going to get home to see your family. And I remember talking to him on the phone slash Zoom. And, and he, he said, he said I, I don't want to die. Um, but he said, I don't know if I'm ever going to see my family again. He said, I don't want to die, but I don't want to lose my family. But knowing that Christ is with me and that he is with my family means I can face what's ahead. Um, and it was months before he got to leave where there was enough of a gap where he was able to get out and get back to the United States. And, and even coming back to the U.S. was very hard because people knew that he had been in China. They treated him badly. No kids wanted to play with his kids. They all thought they were going to get sick. Um, when your life is on the line, this sort of thing's not a cliche, right? Trust Jesus sounds like a cliche, until you have nothing else to trust. See, this is a life-giving, life-sustaining, fear-conquering truth that we all need. Uh, and maybe your situation's not as dire in that as that, and maybe it's not as unknown as that. Um, even if you don't need this, this truth now, which you do need it now, but even if you feel you don't need it now, you will hit a moment where you realize that you need it, and all of your other solutions fall away and they crumble. Matthew includes something in his discussion of this miracle I want you to notice. And it's hard not to notice it. It really stands out. After Jesus tells them to take heart, he speaks into this situation and Peter responds. And he responds in this remarkable way because if you, if you know Peter, then you know Peter's always surprising us. Um, but Peter responds by saying, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And I don't know what prompts this question. Perhaps Peter is just filled with a moment of exquisite trust and he wants to be put to the test. But Jesus calls to him and says, come. He doesn't warn him. He doesn't say, just so you know, this is real water. Um, <laughs> he just says, come. Um, Peter does walk on the water, but his, his walk is very short-lived. That's one of the things that's so remarkable. You wonder, what's it feel like under your feet, Peter? You want to know the, the little details like this. Um, but his walk is short-lived, of course, because as he steps away from the boat, there is nothing underneath of him except the sovereign hand of God, right? The miraculous work of God is keeping him from sinking, and he notices the wind, and he notices the waves. The passage draws our attention to the fact that he sees these things, and that, he, the, that Matthew grounds his sinking in what he paid attention to. And by noticing what he pays attention to, you also notice what he is not paying attention to. It's hard not to look at this passage without noticing the commonalities between Peter and the disciples and ourselves. It is hard not to learn the obvious lesson here. I mean, it's the lesson that every preacher has probably pointed out when he looks at this passage. When our eyes are on Jesus, our faith is strong. And when we look at ourselves and we look at our circumstances, our faith is weak. The circumstances are a distraction. They are not the main show here. They're not the thing that Peter's supposed to even be noticing. He's supposed to fix his gaze upon Jesus and walk to him. And the circumstances can become all that we see, though, especially when they're dramatic, especially when they're especially hard. And they can pull our eyes off of the very place where, where our fear is meant to be conquered. 
When he's gazing at Jesus, he has everything he needs. He lacks nothing. He has no reason to fear. And when he looks away, he has every reason to fear. It is important. It's important that we have an established practice, a habitual reflex of finding hope in Jesus and not relying on ourselves and our circumstances to feel hopeful. Um, Again, like I, I was talking about this last week, we tend to be in the reformed world. We tend to be very reasonable people, thoughtful people. We try to plan very well. And so we want to be wise. We don't want to be foolish. And so oftentimes we end up looking at our own skill and our ability to get out of a situation. And I have often had um, brothers where uh, I will talk about the problem and I'm prepared to talk about what a solution looks like. And it's a solution in action. And their reflex is we should pray. And at first I feel a tad bit annoyed because I'm like, I'm not very holy and you're better than me, you know, (laughs) which is great. I'm glad someone's better than me. Um, but you, you wish, you wish that I find myself frequently wishing, I wish I was so holy that I, that my first reflex is I should pray about this, but far too often my reflex is we can solve this. Let's pray if it goes bad. Uh, Like that's easy to do. That's a very natural human reflex and it's wrong, wrong, wrong. Um, what we need is the reflex of prayer, going to the Lord first, remembering even the solution that we come up, come, come up with, and if, especially if it works, it was God being kind to us and God being merciful to us. We cannot find in the moment, hope in the moment, just because things look good as we speak. We should not depend upon the way circumstances look to decide whether or not we will pray because the situation changes. Suffering comes. How has God been fortifying you now while you don't suffer for the suffering that will come to you one day? You know, I I don't actually ask if you're ready because I, I don't think that your preparation for those things is contingent on you. Is God sufficient for your trouble when your troubles come? The answer is yes. Are you strong and fortified and ready for it? No, I don't think that's a very good answer to ask question to ask. Instead, the question is, are you habitually looking to Jesus? Is your reflex to look to Jesus? Is your reflex to go to God in prayer? Or is your reflex, I'm going to figure this out. Is he filling your heart with a vision of his son? So that when your fears come true, he is there with you in it. Or maybe the going is tough right now. You're thinking, when things get hard, when suffering comes... I'm there. What is your anchor? How does that compare to the anchor God gives you? Are are you making use of the anchor or do you keep throwing things into the storm, hoping that one of them will do the trick, hoping that somehow you'll touch bottom with it, that the anchor will touch bottom, that then this, this device that you've come up with will hold and fix the situation. I want you to notice the disciples answer here. It says the moment that changed everything. And it was this. It was when they heard him speak. He identified himself. He told them not to fear. And when we see, and when we see that, here's, here's the posture that changes. They go from being fearful to being worshipful. And, and verse 33 is one of those stunning verses, the sort of verse that you 
that you just want to show to every Jehovah's Witness that shows up at your door, right? It says, those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. They worshiped him. They didn't, they didn't worship in a generic way. They focused their worship on the man standing with them. Truly, you are the son of God. Do you see how their situation turns on a dime? And, and the dominating thought in this moment is not, woo, we made it out again. Let's get to shore and go eat something, right? The overwhelming response is that this moment has revealed who Jesus is. And there is nothing that makes sense right now except to worship him. He deserves worship. This is a man that deserves worship. They're right to worship him. This is the right reflex. And here's the interesting thing. Just a little bit ago, they, were, they thought there was nothing better they could say about Jesus than that he would be king. And now here he is, and he's so much more than that. And here's my prayer for you. And I suppose this is sort of a, a pastoral goal. As a pastor, what does is, what is pastoral success look like? Uh, I, I don't, that's a hard, hard, hard question to actually answer. Because if all of us could be more holy and love Jesus and people could come to know Christ, I would be very happy. But what would, what would a low-level goal be for me? I would feel so happy if in the midst of life's crises, you as God's people find yourselves worshiping. Um, the ultimate example of this is Job. I talked about Job already, but think about Job. In this moment that comes... He says, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He worships after losing all of these things. In other words, I I as a pastor would be very happy if you as a church had such a God-centered view of your suffering. If you suffered and you saw God in it and you were able to rest in that moment because you trust him. Right, I lost everything, Job says. I lost my family, I lost my home, I lost my finances, I lost seemingly everything, and yet he has not lost God. And for you to be able to say, I have not lost Christ, even though everything else crumbled. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is my prayer for you as a people. They go from terror to worship, right? Here's what I pray. I pray that when terror enters into your life, instead of retreating into your old solutions and your own wisdom, you will not forget that it is the Lord who gives. It is the Lord who takes away. And it all revolves around him. He is at the center and everything in your life orbits around it, including you. He does not orbit you. You orbit him. He is at the center. He is up to something. He is showing the world who he is. He's showing you who he is. Will you worship him even when all is not well? I spoke at the beginning about the power of fear and talked about how it varies based on your life situation. And I don't know what your temptation or your fear is, but I do know this. Christ's answer is one size fits all. Um, He is the same Jesus for the person who suffers deeply and for the person who isn't suffering at all and is having a great time right now. Right? He is, he's talking to 12 different men in this moment. And, and each of them has something different going through their heads. The thing going through their heads may be similar, but also very different, right? Think of this. 
Judas is probably thinking something different than Matthew. Just for example, Peter has a thought go through his head that doesn't go through the other disciples' heads. I should walk on this water. Right? It doesn't go through Judas's head uh, or, or Matthew's head or, or John's head to do that. So all of them have their own rich inner life going on. And so the one word comes to 12 different men. They all hear Jesus say one thing and it speaks into each of their situations such that the terror goes away. And, and that's, by the way, that's the way that God's word works. That's the way a sermon's supposed to work. Uh, the one word of God, one sermon received dozens of different ways. I preach a sermon and uh, after the service, someone comes to me and says, I heard exactly what you were saying. You, you were saying this. And I think I didn't even say that, I don't think. Um, and it's not necessarily a wrong answer. Um, um, or you'll have somebody come up to you and says, you were talking about me today. And no, I was not subtweeting you in, in the sermon. That's not the way I roll. Um, <laughs> All of us get what we need from the one word. God's spirit speaks a dozen different ways through the same word. He applies the word of God, in other words. The text has one meaning, but it can be applied so many different ways. Jesus offers himself as the answer to the fears of the disciples. He, he doesn't really offer them a doctrine, right? He, he doesn't sit down and say, now, just here, understand for a moment. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God. I want to explain these things to you. Uh, he, he just offers himself. All he says is, it is I. It, it is I. Right? There's a place for propositional truths. In fact, the whole Christian faith is understood in terms of propositional truths. The Bible is full of statements about things that are true about God. But when you look at the experience of being a follower of Christ, you are not looking at a a series of statements strung together. Being a follower of Jesus means knowing a person, Jesus, right? Being a follower of Jesus means being saved, but it's the work of Jesus that we benefit from by being united to the person by faith. The fact that Jesus is a person keeps all of this from being abstract, We are united by faith alone to a person, not a doctrine. Our fear is stolen away by a person, not an abstract principle. Those those principles and doctrines help us understand the person. But in the end, Jesus is very careful to draw our eyes to him directly and personally. Do not miss this. The answer that he gives is himself. But there is a doctrinal angle That strengthens the personal nature of this because just hearing Jesus say it is I only does so much. See, there's a double punch here uh, because the question is, who is Jesus? And he gives a hint in this moment because his precise wording in the Greek is this. He says, ego a me. And it translates as I am. See, this is known as one of the I am sayings of Jesus. In the Old Testament, God is known by the name I am. God tells Moses, tell them that I am has sent you. This is the name that God goes by. In verse 20, he takes that name for himself, Jesus does. He doesn't just say, it is I. He says, I am. And so he comforts them doubly here. He actually is giving them his person and he's telling them a propositional truth about his person. He's actually doing both. 
See, with his own presence and the reality of who he is, he pairs these things together. He is here and he is I am. He is Yahweh himself. He's not distant. He's not absent. He is invested. He is in this storm with them. He's not exalted. He's he's being beaten by the same waves. He's being struck by the same wind. This is a passage in which I am walks upon the very sea that he made by the word of his power. And he walks across it as if it were dry ground. This is not an allegory. This is a thing that happened in real space and real time. But it is a reminder to us if he can do that with water. If he can do that with the movement of air. If he can do this with rain. He can do that with anything that makes us tremble. He can steal your fear. He reminds you even this morning that whatever your situation, he is on top of it. He is not overwhelmed. He is sovereign. And he gives you his presence. Let's pray together. Lord, we are, we are prone to miss you when life's troubles are upon us. We tend to misunderstand you. We tend to only see things from our own perspective. We tend to forget you for who you really are. And so we pray this morning that you would fix our gaze upon Jesus so that as the troubles come, and they will, that we can know him truly and have our knowledge of you as an anchor for our souls. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.